Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Pastor Greg Strawbridge about infant baptism. If this topic interests you, I highly recommend the books we discuss in the episode, as well as Doug Wilson's To a Thousand Generations. You can find that at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Pastor Greg Strawbridge. All right, now welcoming on Pastor Greg Strawbridge of All Saints Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He is also the director of an internet, internet audio library, which I want to get to as well, called wordmp3.com. He's taught college-level courses at several campuses and written on a variety of issues related to theology, apologetics, and worship. And in particular today, we're talking to him about infant baptism. Pastor Greg, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, that. Of course, of course. So would you mind sort of introducing us to you and then we'll get right into it. I was born as a small child. Um, <laughs> I was born as an infant. Uh, well, so I spent uh, my days of youth in the South. I'm from Mississippi. Okay. Can you believe that? Mississippi. I can New hear Albany, it. Mississippi. I think I hear it. A little bit. Yep. My accent's been gone for a while, but uh, not totally. I uh, was in a Bible church for about 10 years that was reformed in its views and then went to the PCA when I converted on bad. And I've been for 20 years, more or less, about 20 years here at um, All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We were, we were Presbyterian Church, small P Presbyterian Church. And we were the first church. That was uh, overseen by Christ Church of Moscow, Idaho, as a mission church. Nice. I know that church. Okay. So I'm actually very interested to hear maybe you mentioned you spent 10 years in a Bible church. That's, I essentially grew up in a Bible church. Can you tell me about that experience? Like when you thought of baptism at the time, what came to mind? Yeah. So in college, I had the, the, the experience of, being in the context of a lot of Reformed Baptist, Southern Baptist Reformed guys. Okay. So in the mid 80s, I went to the Southern Baptist Founders Conference and I met guys like Tom Askell, who's still <laughs> around. And I met guys like Ernest Reisinger and so many others, Fred Malone. These are all guys in the, the Reformed Baptist movement within the Southern Baptist Convention. And they're doing good work. I really appreciate them. I met a couple of them actually at the Fight Left Feast conference back in Nashville back in October. And in that context, I formed a, a vision of why do we do baptism the way we do? And it was the new covenant's different. And that, that's really what uh, held me into the baptistic point of view for, from that time, from college years through seminary for 10 years or so, if you include my internships. So. Can you talk about that? So at the time, as you conceived of the new covenant, and as you're having those discussions, I assume just about everybody would say it's different. What do you have in mind when you said the new covenant is different? Yeah. So I had been exposed and around people in the Presbyterian world. Uh-oh. So I you know, it's not like I'd not, not heard something to the effect of, well, children are 
in the covenant and therefore they should receive the sign of the covenant. I mean, that was the common thing from my college days on. But um, at some point, I came into contact with the view. I think it was Fred Malone, uh, who's a Southern Baptist, Calvinistic type guy who's written about this. I remember Fred Malone persuasively arguing to me that um, the new covenant's different. That is, everyone in the covenant is regenerate. So, Calvinistically regenerate. So, basically, you were dead in your sins and now you're regenerate. And that's what I remember about that conversation. It's like, I think it's circa 1986. And that's probably before you were born, right? It is. It is. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, you were not even Not anything. even. Nope. Not even a twinkle. Yeah. Uh, and so... Um, And it's like, yeah, actually, that's the grounding for who gets the sacrament of baptism. Who gets it? People that are regenerate. Right. That's different from the Old Testament how, in that view, or, you know, in the view that you had at that time. Yeah. So, the idea is in the Old Covenant world, in the world of the Old Testament, the whole of Israel is sacramentally included. So they go to the sacrifices, they you know they participate in Passover, they do this, they get circumcised if they're male and so forth. So everyone in the Old Testament world is included and the whole family is included and that's perfectly obvious from Abraham's covenant from Genesis 12 all the way through, certainly Genesis 17, you know, circumcise all the males of your household and everyone born into your household. From that point on, it becomes a huge reason of uh, solidarity to the uh, Israelite people. But the argument was when Jesus came and instituted the new covenant, only people that actually have the spiritual qualifications, namely regeneration, can be participants in baptism. As opposed to th- car- carnal type things such as you know, your last name or uh, you know, who your parents are. Yeah, or just right. being born into yes. the church or right. being part of some kingdom or whatever. So, uh, that idea was very important to me for that time period. Again, about 10-ish years of time. Now, our church, the, our, uh, our Bible church, I'll tell you that, Audubon Drive Bible Church. Audubon Drive. Audubon Drive okay. in Laurel, Mississippi. My good friend and, and brother, Jerry Marcelino, is still the pastor there. I went through a couple of guys uh, bef- as a young assistant pastor, and then he has been there since, I think, 1993, and saw him not too long ago. He's still a very ardent Baptist, so praise God for him. But when um, I went through that time period of about 10 years, we had an influx of a lot of Presbyterians. Because it was a pretty faithful Bible teaching type church, and a lot of people were, I mean, actually, I would say it this way. We could have been the first CREC church. We could have been right there with Christ Church and the church in Wenatchee and Dave Hatcher. We could have been right there at that time in the ni- early 90s because we had a high view of children. We had a high view of Christian education, all that stuff. And we worked through the baptism thing. We had a lot of Baptists, not a a lot of Pado baptists and I was the guy that kind of sat down and said, well, you know, we shouldn't make a big deal about, about baptism. So, we had already approved, if you're baptized as an infant, you don't need to be rebaptized. 
Okay. You, you know, we just accept that baptism. So that was, you know, I know like you, you said you're from Bethlehem, right? Yep. So John Piper lost a big vote on that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Doesn't he hold that idea that you don't need to be rebaptized? Is that he, true? So, so John, John did hold to a view that if that basically church membership should be as wide as the doors to heaven and essentially just said they should be, you know, if they were baptized as an infant, Bethlehem Baptist Church will not make them be rebaptized, but he lost that vote by a lot. And so, oh, did he? Bethlehem okay. Baptist. Well, so we approved that like in uh, like 1992 or something like that, like way early. And then a couple of years later, as we started a printing press, kind of uh, canon press, if you will, for our context, the first thing we did was John Bunyan's Baptism No Bar to Communion, which Bunyan, John Bunyan, the most probably the most famous Baptist, most published Baptist ever, said, hey, we shouldn't make your mode of baptism and all that, a bar to being a communicant saint in a church. And so we, you know, went for that. And that was great for a few years. And then I converted on the subject. And then the elders were like, uh, we have a problem here. Um, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Can you kind of walk me through, is this, we're still talking late 80s here? 90s. Okay, 90s. this is the 90s. Yeah. So what, what exactly turned you i mean you you called it converted so i mean like in terms of um the topic of baptism yeah. what was it that swayed you the other direction we had started training pastors like in the mid 90s and we had gone through a bunch of guys and a lot of you know we were reading calvin we were reading the reformers we were very self-identifying as reformed people and because of that by the way if you read calvin on baptism I mean, there is almost no unique and new argument after Calvin. Like Calvin pretty much covers every possible thing. I, I think I've added a couple things, but they're minor. <laughs> and so if you read Calvin and you've got students that are really like digging into it, it's like they're going to stay. By the way, you're wrong on baptism. And that's what was starting to happen. We had a couple of students that are like, hey, I read Calvin. I think we should baptize babies. That's kind of what happened. But uh, it always had that new covenant argument on the, you know, like sort of cross your fingers, hope to die type thing. Every time someone said, well, well but look, look at the household cases or look at any argument. I said, but who's in the new covenant? They all know the Lord. They're all regenerate. Are you saying infants are regenerate? Are you saying babies? That's what I would always pull out. And right. I would talk to, I remember talking to a lot of PCA guys conservative Presbyterian type guys, and they would say, but look, children are in the covenant. I'm like, okay, what covenant are we in? The new covenant. Okay, let's describe the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. They know the Lord, they have their sins forgiven, they're regenerate, right? Right. So, are you saying your babies are regenerate? Uh, well, um, and that, that would be the argument that I would use frequently. Right. Now, Which in the context of with Jeremiah being in the Old Testament, you know, this covenant sounds something new because as you, as we all have read the new covenant or sorry, the Old Testament, things like judges or, or the story of Israel seems like a lot of oscillation and back and forth. Clearly something isn't working and Jeremiah gives this promise. And so it does, you know, kind of sound like this is something entirely new. Well, so I always pull that argument out and say, what covenant are we in? And here's the new covenant. And are you saying your children are regenerate? 
And that's kind of the way I would argue for a couple of years there. Well, finally, I'm, we had a guy come down and speak to us because we were taking, uh, we bought a new building and we were taking control of a Christian school. And so we brought this guy down that was an expert in Christian education in 1997. And he came down. And on, I remember on one of the weekend nights, we went out to dinner. It was just me and a guy that had already read Calvin and was pretty much persuaded, and this guest speaker. And this guest speaker said, You know, here's my question about baptism Is there anyone in the new covenant that's unregenerate? And Doug Wilson opened up his Bible and read <laughs> Hebrews 10 28 to 31. Okay. Do you mind reading that for us? <laughs> well, Hebrews 10, 28 to 31. And, and I'd kind of worked it out like to some kind of quite precise, you know, understanding. Right. Right. And it was like, if you can prove to me there are unregenerate people in the new covenant, then my whole backbone of my argument goes away. Because there's a lot of ancillary arguments, you know, household baptisms or there are plenty of little things that, that people will say that can be persuasive to a lot of people. But every time I'd go there, well, Hebrews 10, 28, I said, you know, Doug, just can you show me and prove to me from the Bible? There are people in the new covenant that are unregenerate, just like there were people in the old covenant that also had sacramental uh, inclusion that were unregenerate. And so, I remember that this is the way I remember it. Now, you know, memories kind of change a bit, so you don't know if I'm getting it right. But my sense was all he did was open up the Bible and read the verses, and he didn't say anything. He didn't make any argument. <laughs> all right. So, here it is. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded unclean, now listen to this phrase, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, here's a, here's a language, the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. There's, there's no way to avoid covenant, and there's no way to avoid new covenant, and there's no way to avoid judgment for people that are included in the new covenant. I mean, it's just stated. And when he read it, I just stepped back and said, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah I, think I, I think you answered <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my friend, I, I talked, I have a close friend and I talked to him about this not too long ago. And I said, you know, that moment was just like, I, I didn't try to argue against it. I just said, okay, all right, uncle, or you win or something, because it just let it go. Now, one thing that I think, so growing up in a Bible church myself, which I'm not sure about yours, uh, but I think I've said before that. We were essentially just terrified of being the villains of Footloose. So we were Baptists, but we were, we were cool with dancing or, you know, we, we just didn't, we didn't want the cultural baggage that came with Baptists, but we were Baptists and did you drink beer? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, I didn't at the time, I wasn't of age, Pastor Strawbridge, but, mm -hmm. uh, that was, you, I mean, I feel like you tried to catch me there, <laughs> but, uh, 
So anyway, we were very cool. We had a sweet building. You know, we were, we were kind of doing the Rick Warren thing. So anyway, wait, wait. I don't think Rick Warren qualifies as Reformed Baptist. But no, 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 okay. no. no but it, but I I just mean uh, Bible Church vibe. You know, non denominational. Doing the Rick Warren thing is is all I mean by that. You know, the, yeah. the church growth stuff. So essentially, as I thought about baptism and kind of started vaguely maturing in, in ways of doctrine, I considered things in purely regenerate, unregenerate. And the Old Testament was kind of spotty. It was more of a shotgun shot. You know, some are, some aren't. And I didn't necessarily have a concept of covenant. So even as you were describing sort of this this turn in Hebrews 10, uh, the idea being it, it almost isn't even a thing that I thought through like, well, Jeremiah 31, this is a new covenant. Everyone's a believer. I just thought of regenerate, unregenerate, period. Like that's how God sees the world only. Can you talk a little bit about maybe... Because that helps us think through, you, you brought up Hebrews 10, but there's also, you know, the, the verses about, um, I suppose it would bring up sort of the fifth tulip thing, the per- perseverance of the saints. That's a real problem. Those texts in terms of um, curses, essentially, for those in the, in the church, quote unquote, however somebody would think about those. Can you talk about maybe those, maybe that, like, it, it, it seems like we're very anemic on the idea of covenant. W- was that the case where you were? Yeah, so let me address the idea of covenant. I, uh, Doug Wilson also has a great line at some point. I don't know when he said this, but he's like, when I would talk about, when I'd hear people talk about the covenant, all I would hear was yammer, 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 covenant, yammer, 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 covenant, yammer, 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 covenant. And I totally relate to that because before I, I came to embrace, you know, pedo baptism and everyone that would talk about the covenant would just be like, it's completely, you know, opaque. I can't understand what you're talking about, except you just say the word covenant over and over again. And that that's kind of a problem. So, let me try to define it. But I, I also acknowledge the fact that until you're on the inside of it, you, you don't quite get, you're not going to quite get it. I mean, I honestly don't think people can get it. I listened, by the way, uh, Jake, I listened to your interview with, uh, is it, uh, Dr. Ward, the C.S. Yes, Lewis scholar. Yes, sir. Yep. And he talks about C.S. Lewis talking about being inside a light beam versus outside. <laughs> and, and, right. And, and, yes. and there's, and Lewis is so, I love C.S. Lewis. He's my man. But there is a sense in which uh, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's, it's okay. Yep. Sometimes you have to sort of take the plunge before you feel the water. Right. But I'll do my best to define it. A covenant is a relationship. So, it's a relationship of a superior to an inferior. So, it's a relationship to God. And that relationship to God has terms. The terms are blessings. This is what I'm going to do for you, says God. And responsibilities. This is what you must do in order to be faithful. That's basically it. Now, the question of the Bible is, who is included in a covenant with a person who's an adult? And the answer is that person who promises fealty or fidelity to God and their children. Now, the and their children part, that's where we're disputing with the Baptist on this point. But I think you can prove that children are included in, in so many different ways. First of all, it's obviously the case that the children were included in the Abrahamic covenant. That's stated. There's no debate about that. Right. And that goes all the way through the Old Testament. Now, in the new covenant, in the New Testament period, 
What do you say about that? Well, first of all, before you even get out of the Gospels, how many times does the text say, again, I'm, I'm not even calling that the new covenant. It's transitional period before Christ dies and is raised and so forth. But how many times does the text say you and your household, or in so many words, your household? And the answer is very many times. Christ recognizes that salvation has come to Zacchaeus and your household. Now, why would that possibly be? Because God has set it up that very way. In fact, the fall was, as in Adam, all die. Right. So, everyone in Adam is covenantly included. If you deny that, you're a heretic of the first order. Yeah. And if you deny that, how can you say that as in Christ, all shall be made alive? Right. It breaks it's down. representative action right. from Christ or from Adam. That's the fundamental truth of the gospel. What I think, especially where, where I was, you know, as, um, as I eventually sort of made my jump to the pedo baptism world and I was still uh, very good friends with with pastors at, at my previous church, and as you know, they would ask, "So, like, what's the deal?" And you know, as I would start, you know, so essentially, how do you relate to the new covenant? Who's in the new covenant? This is, you know, you would, as a Baptist, I imagine, would say this, and even that alone for a lot of folks in that world was just sort of like, no, baptism is essentially. They, I mean, baptism for them isn't necessarily even a covenant. It's more of a this is a public profession of faith. You know, you essentially in the Bible they did it in front of people who, you know, weren't Christians, you know, they were really taking a risk by making this public profession of faith, following Jesus and his direction. And, you know, how blessed are we that we kind of get to do it in front of friends and family. Um, you know, that's really the concept of baptism in what I would, I would want to guess a major part of evangelicalism. And so even as you were saying, like when the minute somebody starts talking about how we relate or how we are included in the new covenant, it just starts to feel like you're talking Old Testament. This is kind of the parts of the Bible I don't really know very well, cryptic. Has that been in your experience as well? Yeah, I would say I have a good friend up the road who believes almost everything I believe, like post-millennial, you know, committed to the Lordship of Christ and so forth, but he's a Baptist. And some years ago, he did a series of lectures about baptism. Okay. And he said, more or less, baptism started John the Baptist. And, and that's the first problem I, I would have. If, if I sit down with the most learned Baptist I know, they do not acknowledge, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but like my typical experience with very studied people that are Baptist, the first baptism that ever happened was John's baptism. This is completely wrong. And, and that's what I think you have to start with. There's a biblical theology of baptism. It unfolds all the way through the Bible. Now, here's, I got two proofs for that, but I probably could give you 10 more. Number one, Paul calls crossing the Red Sea baptism, 1 Corinthians 10. Secondly, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 calls the washings in the tabernacle, baptismos, various washings. The word is baptisma, baptisma. It's baptism. So the Old Testament rites of washing are called by the New Testament baptism. And if you extend that at all, crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan River, when John went out, where did he go to? 
He went out to the Jordan River. Right. He had people cross the Jordan River on the Trans Jordan. They crossed the river. There's there's an Exodus kind of theme that's happening with John the Baptist. So the first thing to do is get your biblical theology of baptism down and realize it extends. Uh, it doesn't start with John the Baptist. John's a fulfillment, not a, a precursor to baptism. He's a fulfillment of a whole bunch of themes out of the Old Testament. Then you say, okay, look, who was baptized? And so, what do you do with baptism? And I, I, maybe I'm veering from your question, but I just want to say, this is what persuaded me. When I was going through it all, I, I thought, well, my major argument about the new covenant doesn't work. So, now I got to go back and find out what the new covenant text, Jeremiah 31, is really talking about. I did that. And then I said, well, I'm, now I've got to go back and look at all the texts about baptism in the New Testament. And does it really require that a person become a confessor before they're baptized? And is that the only you know, story? Um, obviously, there are places which, that say you must believe and then be baptized. And you know, I think what you were alluding to is, yeah, people have to confess their faith publicly. Now, by the way, that's absolutely the case with converts to Christianity that are capable of doing that. And by the way, this is an astounding fact. Like if you, you look at all the different places people disagree in, in the Christian faith, they disagree about this, that, and the other thing, all churches agree. Every single one of Pentecostals to Eastern Orthodox agree, you confess your faith before you're baptized if you were an adult convert. I mean, everyone agrees with this. Right. This is not disputed. The question and dispute is, what do you do with the children of those adult converts? That's that's what we're talking about. Right. And what what information in the Bible is relevant to that? Absolutely. So it seems to me there's a lot there's a lot in the debate in terms of um, what can be sort of misdirection as I think you're illustrating here there's a lot that we agree with there are particular questions maybe uh, at least that I've noticed when you think of the debate and you see both sides doing their thing and as we're about to talk about you you are part of editing a book and part of writing in the book so I feel like you know that was in 2003 I believe that it was published so just as your yes. time over and you've watched this debate, are there questions? Um, so you may see like a noob level argument of, you know, well, no, you got to confess with your mouth and forgiveness of sins. That's what makes a Christian. And then you see the other, you know, new one, you know, being like, no covenant, you know, household baptisms. Uh, so you see that. But are, are there questions that you think are really helpful for folks that are considering this? Like, what what are the questions do you think? are the most helpful for them to consider that maybe yeah. get past I, I, some of the little arguments. Okay. So I think the main question that we're asking is a continuity question. So if in the Old Testament world, you have complete inclusion of the family, and that is really not to be disputed. I mean, there's no question that sacrifices, quote, atoned for in the sense of that symbolic and um, representative nature for children 
that children were included in Passover. I mean, there's been a lot of wasted, ridiculous time spent on did younger children eat the Passover? That's just read the verses. That's very plain that they did. Infants don't eat Passover because they can't eat. Right. But like children are included. That's just plain. And I'm not going to spend any time trying to argue and debate that point because it's just perfectly obvious. Yeah, that's like debating. Were were males circumcised <laughs> that were faithful Israelites in the Old Testament? Right. That That's just, okay, sure. You want to write a paper on that? Go for it. That's plain. And so, there's sacramental, in, I just put it generally, there's sacramental inclusion of the families of Israel all the way through. Now, the issue is, does that continue when Christ comes and is resurrected? So, now we're asking a question, is there some continuity of sacramental inclusion of the church or of New Covenant people after the resurrection? Now, what's the best evidence to address that? If you say, well, the best evidence is the commands that were given, like be baptized in the name of Jesus and believe before you're baptized. That's actually not the best evidence. And here's why. A Pharisee in the middle of Jesus' ministry could have stood up and said, go, therefore, and circumcise the Gentiles in the name of the God of Israel. He could have done that. that. That's perfectly true. I mean, we know this from the text. Right. That does not mean <laughs> that their children wouldn't be circumcised. And we actually have a case of this in Acts 15. In Acts 15, there's this dispute about uh, the Judaizers dispute. And it says something to the effect of that those that were part of the circumcision party, basically Judaizers, were saying, People who believed in Jesus needed to be circumcised in order to fulfill the law of Moses. Just read the first few verses of Acts 15. Okay, now what does that statement mean? That they needed to, if they believed that they needed to be circumcised. Let me just pull up the text because I I don't want to miss this point. But some men came down, down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Barnabas and Paul had great dissension debate with them. They determined that they should go up to Jerusalem. This is kind of the precursor to Galatians. And here's what it goes on to say. When the, some, this is verse five, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them. Now, who's the them? The people that are, quote, saved, right? Unless you circumcise them according to the custom of Moses, they can't be saved. Unless you circumcise them, who's the them? Well, who gets circumcision? Well, not only the adult males, right? but the infant males, the child males. So, the language is inclusive. Saved is inclusive of children. In this passage, that is, I think, really not disputable. That the people that are quote saved in the Old Testament include their children. That's uh, there's no dispute of that. But but even here, I think the best information that we have on inclusion is who was baptized. And I've made a a point of this in my debates and and writing and things. But I don't tire of saying it because it's 
an astounding fact. If you're asking about continuity, is there sacramental inclusion in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament? That, that's the Baptist claim. Well, in the New Testament, every individual has to do X, Y, and Z and be spiritually qualified before they're baptized. Okay, I understand the thesis very plainly. Of nine individuals that can be named in the New Testament that were baptized after Pentecost, nine, there's only nine, you, you know, go through them all if you want, nine, six are household cases, three of the others. Let's talk about the three. Saul, no household, that's Paul, right? The Ethiopian eunuch, why weren't his children baptized? Uh, he's a eunuch, so he, uh, yeah, he didn't get, he didn't have kids, right? He's a eunuch. And then there's Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter eight. That's the other guy. So of of nine people you can name and have a pericope or have any discussion about, six have their households baptized. Right. Two don't have children, plainly. And you got Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter eight. And Simon the Sorcerer is the number one case of apostate baptism. He, quote, believes and then tries to buy the Holy Spirit for money, and Peter condemns him. And, like, that's the best case for the Baptist point of view. So, I mean, I, I completely, I, I concede to the Baptist Simon the Sorcerer. I mean, he's your man. He <laughs> believed, then he was baptized. He's an adult. That's plain. And he became an apostate. I mean, that, that's the Baptist case. I don't, I don't mean to be harsh to my Baptist brothers, but like, seriously, that the only person that could have had a household that didn't have it baptized as reported in the New Testament was Simon the Sorcerer. Right. That, that's it. Right. Uh, I want to be kind to your time. We're, we're coming, we're coming down. But as I was telling you before, your book, The Case for Covenantal infant baptism is one that uh, I mentioned I went to a Baptist Bible college and that's that was the book everyone was interacting with whether they were arguing against or for so this this book and I can just see the cover in my mind was the book you know I just had as you know if you want to be convinced or you want to argue against it that's a great book to do it can you tell us a little bit about that book and where they can go find sure, it yeah, and, yeah. and chase down some of these things for themselves oh yeah yeah. So it's published by Presbyterian Reformed, so PNR. Okay. It's available on wordmp3.com if you want to order it from from me. But it it's um the idea behind the book, I'll give you a short summary of how we got there. I'd been persuaded in 1997, I'd kind of worked through it for a few months, then went into the PCA for 3 years. And about midway into that experience of being a Presbyterian pastor in the PCA, I had that idea. And, and the idea was very simple because I'd worked through baptism like very severely. Now, I did a PhD in 1994. I guess I graduated in 1994. And I, you know, I wasn't a great student or anything or super academic, but, but I, I'd learned to study and I'd learned to read and things like that, uh, read things well and can I kind of work it out. Um, and by the time I'd gotten to the late 90s, I had kind of read everything on baptism. I'd read all the popular books and, and a bunch of very arcane things and all that. And what I realized is there is a very, very persuasive book written by Paul K. Jewett against infant baptism. Now, he was, Jewett was a fuller seminary professor, and he had um, written a book called Infant Baptism and the Covenant of Grace. 
and he was actually going out for being a, I think he was writing in that for his ordination or something to the Presbyterian Church USA, which was a very liberal institution. And that book was super well-written, very persuasive, very persuasive. And I realized like there is no version of that in the paedo-baptism world. Like there's just no persuasive book in the paedo-baptist. And there are a few of them and that try for it, but nothing to compete with that. So my idea was I'm going to get scholars from every discipline, from every reformed context and put them together in one book. It's going to be the most persuasive book on the covenantal view of infant baptism. And that's what I attempted to do. I had some roadblocks along the way. I didn't get everybody I wanted. Some people agreed and then it didn't work out and some people you know, didn't. But anyway, it turned out to be a pretty good book. And as soon as I got it together, as soon as it was, you know, it took a long, by the way, it took a long time. I started in 99, didn't get out there till 2003. Right. And if, uh, if, you're, if you're marking time according to the uh, federal vision clock or something. <laughs> There's a lot of people happened. that do. There's a lot of people that and, do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Federal vision year one was 2002 and year two was 2003. So I went to the federal vision quote conference uh, in 2003 and I, in the book that it, you know, was just coming out, People on both sides of the aisle were in the book, which I, I hope, you know, increased sales. I don't know if it did or not, but I have um, to imagine it, it would. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that was the case. And so a lot of those issues, a lot of the issues related to federal vision weren't really tightly defined at that, in the time we were right. bringing it all together. But uh, that, that's how it happened. I just had this idea like, let's make the most persuasive book that lays out the best arguments and let's get everyone in their own. A domain of scholarship to write a chapter. So, like, let's get a, a really good New Testament scholar to write something on the Great Commission. Let's get a really good historical scholar to write something on church history. And by the way, uh, here's a maybe an anecdote that some people will like. So, Samuel um, J- uh, Davis, Davies, I think, uh, from Princeton, he had written this thing about infant baptism, and he said, Basically, no one believes what Baptists believe until the 1500s when the Anabaptists kind of rebelled. Like for, for 1500 years, no one believed that you should be baptized on the basis of your profession. And I thought that was a slam dunk quote. I think it's in Randy Booth's book, but you can find it pretty easily on, online. So I said, I want a historical you know, essay in the, a chapter that does what what he did, which is just like slam dunks the Baptist point of view historically. So I asked my friend, Peter Lighthart, to write it. <laughs> and he ended up writing a chapter called The Tragic Comedy of Baptism. <laughs> and he did not slam dunk it. He's like, well, you know, sometimes in history, uh, it was good. And, <laughs> and I'm like, Peter, please, man, I just wanted you to say the Baptists were wrong the whole time. <laughs> but he didn't say that. And, and, you know, he's obviously a great historical <laughs> scholar. That was his PhD in, on Cambridge, you know, from baptism. But he, I wanted him to say, obviously they're wrong, but he didn't do that. So well, he didn't do that. <laughs> Is there a, so you have all kinds of, uh, you mentioned 
all over the place, all over the aisles of authors in there. Is there a thesis in there, like a one sentence thesis that is your favorite in there? That's a good question. I think I would say the account of baptism that comes through the Reformation period is the best account of baptism biblically. And that is that children are included sacramentally in God's covenant plan. That's the basic idea. I, I think that's the one that's most important. Now, you, of course, if you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox or something else, you can just believe the authority of the church on baptism. And I'm not going to, you know, at this point, I wouldn't dismiss believing the authority of the church. I think we all have to submit to authorities at various points. If you are, you know, unwilling to see the continuity link that I just described, then you you know, kind of have a shallow reading of the New Testament, don't see that maybe there's more going on there. Um, but if, you know, if, if you can say, well, I have a theological and biblical and evidential kind of account of baptism. It is God relates to us. He makes covenantal relationships with us and our children are included. And when you look at baptism cases in the Bible, there could just be no more promising set of statistics than of nine people, six are household cases, two don't have households. And you've got this weird story about Simon the sorcerer. I don't think you can really. Who's uh, a sorcerer. So, you know, you kind of expect that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And apparently, I mean, there's some early church weirdness about like Simon, he becomes maybe a magician in Rome or I don't I don't even know the, the history of, of, of Simon is probably worth the. Uh, worth investigating. But um, yeah, so th th that, that's it. I mean, you have plenty of cases of continuity with the family. I, the, the best one to me is, is, is very prominent in Acts, Acts 16. It's the jailer. Now, the jailer in Philippi is the first pagan that we have a story about. Now, there are Gentiles before Cornelius, but he's a God-fearer. He, he's been giving alms to, the, to Jerusalem, and he's you know, he's not an out-and-out -out pagan. He's got some fear of God. The jailer, it's evidenced in the text, he does not have any fear of God. He doesn't know anything about the God of Israel. He's totally taken off guard. Right. And the, the summation of that story by Luke is, you know, what must I do to be saved? Right. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, period. Right? Right. Right? No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. It right. couldn't be plainer. Absolutely. Pastor Strawbridge, you've been more than kind with your time. I'm going to let you out of here. You can find the case for covenantal infant baptism on Amazon and you said wordmp3.com where there uh, is tons of edifying and phenomenal audio and you can sign up for it. And then there's also a little bit of free content, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. By the way, I'll give you a couple other things here. So I, I wrote a chapter for a book on children in the church for Broadman and Holman. Okay. So it's like one of those five views type books. Okay. And that's on Word p 3 too. And there are audio presentations of all the speakers, an East, Eastern Orthodox guy, Roman Catholic guy, a Lutheran guy. And a Baptist guy, I'll go into a bar. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, you can get that. And that's, that's my most recent sort of published stuff. But I have a bunch of videos and things like that. I did debate James White on baptism right. and that's won. Right. 
and won. <laughs> no, he he he's a professional debater, so he obviously won. Uh, but it's on YouTube, so you can get that. Okay, awesome, everybody. You have your call to action. Go find those resources and enjoy them, and uh, baptize your kids. <laughs> well, I. Th- th- yeah, I would say work through it before you baptize them, but okay. Fair uh, and if, if I can be uh, helpful to anyone, I've interacted with a lot of people over the years, so feel free to reach out to me at uh, wordmp3.com. Perfect. Thanks so much, Greg. Take care. Take care.